Greetings once again, dear listeners, and thank you for joining us here at the Republic Broadcasting Network. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy, your host for the next one hour, and you are listening to Datum Line. In our last Datum Line broadcast, entitled Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 12, we opened that message by uncovering a perverse interpretation of the Constitutional Coinage Clause that surfaced just in time to be accorded praiseworthy inclusion in a book entitled No More National Debt, authored by Bill Still and published in 2011. Mr. Still is also the producer of two videos, The Money Masters and The Secret of Oz. Now, while I'd like to recommend these to our listeners, there are so many problems in each of them that it would be impractical to isolate the truths so as not to ratify his abundant errors, one of which is the absurdity that our founding fathers granted to Congress the power to coin paper at Article 1, Section 8, Paragraph 5. This marvel of interpretation was first published in 2008 by a Harvard professor of law, Mr. Robert G. Nadelson, and was dutifully added to the populist clipboard of quotable fiction. You know, to win an essential argument regarding a proper interpretation of the Constitution is certainly tempting, especially when you're trapped in a box canyon from which the only escape is to admit error. But to sacrifice your credibility on the altar of intellectual deceit is a far worse fate. Followers of Bill Still are led to believe that the coining of only gold and silver by the United States Mint is an unwarranted limitation placed upon Congress, which we now discover should be coining paper. I'm amazed how folks can praise the United States Supreme Court for a non-existent decision in Juliet versus Greenman back in 1884 to sustain United States notes without a promise to pay money, which notes did not even exist until 1963, and then ignore the same court's clear and compelling definition for the verb to coin, which does not include the power to coin paper or to create money. If it did, the Juilliard Court would have jumped on that fact in a heartbeat. We, in turn, would have learned that a completely irrelevant street definition for the verb to coin, meaning to invent or create words and phrases, could be massaged into the Constitution for the benefit of a power-hungry Congress, the Federal Reserve, and a host of socialist economic saviors in our midst. As it turns out, some unredacted judicial history is still quietly telling a different story. The word coin as a verb means, quote, to fashion pieces of metal, not paper, metal, into a prescribed shape, weight, and fineness, and stamp them with prescribed devices by authority of government in order that they may circulate as money, end quote. Black's Law Dictionary, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, and 6th edition, and no doubt it was the 1st and probably the 7th, and if there's an 8th. Anyway, they were citing who? Legal Tender Cases, 79 United States Report, page 457, 12 Wallace Report, page 457, 20 Lawyers Edition, page 287, and Sayer v. Hedges, 22 Indiana Report, page 282. On the other side of our first break, we'll consult the words of Bill Still once again, this time letting him provide further proof that the power to coin money neither included the power to coin paper nor to create fictitious money 
out of absolutely nothing with which to steal the labors of others. Our message today, Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 13. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy, your host, and this is Datum Line. this segment of Datum Line, today's message, Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 13. When an argument is built upon the many myths which undergird the populist economic platform, it's easy to miss a simple truth that's staring you square in the face. (laughs) In fact, it's imperative to ignore what does not fit into a twisted frame of reference. So before we return to the legal tender debates of 1862, which is where we left off in our last message, let's expand a little more upon this foolish notion of coining paper, a subject we opened with in our previous broadcast. As mentioned on the front side of our first break, Bill Still is going to strengthen our position that Congress was never granted the power to coin paper. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm uh, I'm going to turn to his book, No More National Debt, and to page 101 if you happen to have a copy of that one. But before we do, <clears throat> I would like to thank Andrew from Ohio, who was kind enough to send me this book. In fact, he sent me three books, all of which he said he was prepared to burn. And I said, oh, gee, don't, don't do that. Uh, send them to me. Uh, I'll look at them. One of them uh, here is uh, The Web of Debt by Ellen Hodgson Hodgson Brown, J.D. And it is the uh, subtitle here is uh, The Shocking Truth About Our Money System and How We Can Break Free. And I noticed that Andrew, uh, while he was going through this book, everywhere the word money shows up, he crosses it out, he put in the word credit. So it's really the shocking truth about our credit system. And that, to the best of my knowledge, is absolutely true. He also sent me, very kindly, The Lost Science of Money by Stephen Zarlenga. I just couldn't afford to spend 50 or 60 bucks to buy 724 pages of <clears throat> this marvelous set of contents. And then he sent me No More National Debt. So, but, so among the three books, I have over 1,500 pages of, uh, of confusion and no telling what all else. And the fact that there are so many books written from this perspective is either to suggest that the position that I'm advancing here, as do some other people in America, either either we're wrong or there is a decided bias in the amount of information that seems to be available to all of these researchers, why it is that they can't find the truth or Maybe it is. Maybe maybe I didn't find it, you know. But uh, anyway, <clears throat> let's go to No More National Debt, page 101. And we're going to go halfway down the page. And let's see here. Subtitle, 
1792, the Coinage Act myth. I'm going to be emphasizing a very few words here for your uh, uh, attention. He starts off, quote, gold bugs, he, he likes that word, he uses that quite frequently, you know. Gold bugs have frequently challenged me, Bill Still, during speeches or radio interviews that the Coinage Act of 1792 specifically mandates that a U.S. dollar must be made of gold or silver. I'm going to stop right there. That's the first sentence. Well, that's not quite true, and Bill is right when he says that this isn't true. Uh, the dollar is not made out of anything. Uh, ounces are not made out of bread. Uh, cubic yards are not made out of concrete. And dollars are not made out of gold or silver. Now, I realize that it was the fashion of the day to call the old big cartwheel coin a dollar. In fact, they used to call it a silver dollar. But that was erroneous. Uh, it wasn't. Uh, and we'll get into that again. We've been into it before. But he goes on. He says, well, that's not exactly true. And he's right. It isn't exactly true. So let's set the record straight once and for all. Oh, boy, that sounds comforting, huh? He goes on. The official name of the Coinage Act of April 2nd, 1792 is an act establishing a mint and regulating the coins of the United States, end quote. If you have an act that's going to establish a mint to regulate coins, why would you think that you're going to be talking about paper? What are coins? Well, we'll go to Black's Law Dictionary, 5th edition. We could go to other editions, but this one will suffice. Coin, as a noun. Pieces of gold, silver, or other metal fashioned into a prescribed shape, weight, and degree of fineness and stamped by authority of government with certain marks and devices and put into circulation as money at a fixed value, period. Next sentence, metal money, period. And that's it. That's the definition for coin as a noun from Black's Law Dictionary. And you notice that it was going to circulate as money at a fixed value. Well, what circulates as if it were money, catch that word if, as if it were money today, in the way of Federal Reserve notes, doesn't seem to have a fixed value in a subjective sense, does it? So we must be talking about a fixed value in an objective sense, in other words, the weight and purity of the coins. And if you go to Black's Law Dictionary under the word value, and you look quite a ways down uh, the inside column there of Black's, it'll get to uh, Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. So with regards to the word value, it meant the weight and the purity of those coins. Not how much they're worth, although that will determine what they're worth, but what they're worth in a subjective sense cannot be regulated and fixed by Congress. Congress has no ability to do that. The only thing they could do was to regulate, in other words, fix the weight and the purity of those coins so that they all came out the same for each particular denomination. Now, with what I've just read from Bill Still's book, and we'll get back into it in a moment. Let's start defining the terms that were used in his opening remarks. We're going to talk about the Coinage Act. We're going to talk about the Mint and another word that I'll introduce. So what is coinage? <clears throat> Quote, the process or the function of coining metallic money. Catch that? Metallic money. 
not wood, stone, plastic, or paper. Also, the great mass of metallic money in circulation, not wood, stone, plastic, or paper money in circulation. Okay, That's the complete definition. I didn't omit anything. Black's Law Dictionary, 5th edition. And you can go to others as well. The word mint. What is the mint? Because he mentioned the mint, because the coinage act establishes a mint. So what is a mint? We're not talking about the flavor. We're not talking about a plant. Okay? Quote, the place designated by law where bullion is coined into money under authority of government, period. That's the end of it. That's the entire definition. Black's Law Dictionary, 5th edition. It's a place where bullion is coined. Not wood, not stone, not plastic, not paper, not anything else. Bullion. Well, what is bullion? Bullion, by definition, quote, gold and silver. Intended to be coined, period. Bullion encompasses at the very least any solid mass of uncoined gold or silver, whatever its shape, so long as its shape does not enhance its value. It's when that bullion gets put into coin form that the value is said to be enhanced. Okay? I added that myself. Anyway, that's Black's Law Dictionary, also without editing. Okay? That's the complete definition. Did you hear the word paper mentioned in there? No, I didn't either. And it's not because I'm hiding it from you. Get out your Black's Law Dictionary. Get out any dictionary. Look up what the word means. Okay? Now, this was taken from a case involving a refining company. Now, with respect to the comments of Bill Still, which immediately follow, I'm not going to leave anything out here, and this is, again, from No More National Debt, page 101. He says, quote, interestingly, he likes that word, it, the Coinage Act of 1792, does not mention paper money, end quote. You know what? He's absolutely right. But based on the definition of coin, coinage, mint, bullion, gold, and silver, why would a coinage act ever mention paper money? Remember the title of the act? He has to tell you. An act establishing a mint and regulating the coins of the United States. Period. Not regulating paper promises. Or, because he doesn't think that notes are promises. He thinks that, he thinks that notes are the money. Ah, marvel after marvel. Would a lumberyard be remiss in failing to tell you that they don't saw or plane lead, copper, granite, marble, oranges, or grapefruit? Must a dairy post signs to say that they don't bottle mercury, concrete, applesauce, or any other non-dairy product? Would an aviation author have to say that the federal aviation regulations don't even mention fractional reserve banking? Would you expect the Federal Aviation Regulations to talk about fractional reserve banking? Of course not. It's not the subject matter. Bill Still. Next sentence. It, the Coinage Act, does not say that only gold and silver may be used as money. By golly, he's right again. It doesn't say that. Nor do the Federal Aviation Regulations say that you cannot navigate within our national airway and airspace system with an ox cart, a 19th century's clipper ship, or a motorcycle. So maybe we need to bring these important omissions to the administrator's attention in the interest of aviation safety. 
But, to be honest, there is another side to this omission that Bill does not address, however. And that is with regards to the party or the parties specifically made subject to the Coinage Act. And we'll be discussing that later on in this presentation. This is Datum Line. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy. Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 13. Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 13, today's message. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy, your host once again. Well, we've been discussing a a book written by uh, Bill Still. It's called uh, No More National Debt. I'm on page 101. We're going to continue with his comments because he's straightening everybody out on uh, on the myths of the Coinage Act. And indeed, uh, there are myths surrounding this subject. Lots of them. The question is, on whose side of the ledger are the myths being propagated? Now, we'll go to Bill Still, still again at page 101. He says, it, quote, the Coinage Act, merely, catch that word? We're going to come back and define it in a moment. It merely established how much pure gold and silver will be in each coin and established the existence of a mint to create these coins, end quote. Well, he's right. That's what it merely did. What does the word merely mean? It means without including anything else. It means purely, only, solely. In other words, it only, according to Bill Ward's own words, it only established how much pure gold and silver will be in each coin and established the existence of a mint. And what's a mint? A mint is a place where you stamp out metal, not paper. It did not establish how much pure gold and silver will be in each coin made out of .900 fine paper. Well, you know, <laughs> kind of brings me to another point here. I'm going to turn to the first sheet of paper inside his book, you know, the one that has the uh, the title on it. And you turn over that page, and this is a page of contributors. And he says, my sincere thanks go out to the 152 backers who contributed to the writing of this book in a financial way through kickstarter.com. I'm amazed that he got 152 backers uh, to support him. Uh, But there they are. They're listed. And you know how when you have contributions that there are certain categories or levels of contributor that you can sign up to become? You know, like a copper, silver, gold, and that sort of thing. Well, here's how they are. The bottom level is copper contributors. The next level is bronze contributors, and he has a list of names under each one of these categories. Then there are silver contributors. Then there's a silver two contribution level. And then there was a silver three contribution level, so evidently he had various categories of backer. And then the next level was gold. So so we're going up the ladder, aren't we? We're going in the direction of precious metals, and we're going to the highest, which now is gold, and there's lots of contributors at the gold level. And then there's even a level called platinum contributors. Now, you'd think that you'd probably reach the the apex, huh? The, uh, The apogee here. No, there's one more level to go. 
Hold your hats. Greenbacker contributor. Wow. We go from copper to bronze to silver to silver to silver three to gold to platinum, and then we go to greenbacker. And greenbacks, the greenbacks of the bill still variety, don't even bear a promise to pay anything on them. In fact, they're not supposed to. They're supposed to be cheap as dirt. They are. And they're absolutely worthless. <laughs> in fact. But you can get people to believe in anything. Anyway, that's quite a spectrum of, uh, of values there. You go from very low to very high to absolutely nothing. Anyway, let's continue. Bill Still, page 101. He quote, he says in the next sentence, quote, in section 16, it, the coinage act, states only that, quote, all gold and silver coins, dot, 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 you know, the three dots of ellipses, struck at, dot, 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 the mint shall be a lawful tender in all payments, dot, 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 three dots of ellipses again. End quote. He omits some text here. In fact, there was text that was omitted at the very beginning because it didn't begin with all gold and silver coins. He actually had the three dots of ellipses again up there. So there's a lot of text that has been omitted, and that's understandable, and he's telling you that he's doing that. But there's also the word whatsoever, which has been omitted, which follows the word payments. So listen carefully now. If it states only that gold and silver coins shall be a lawful tender in all payments whatsoever. That's that word he omitted. Then why would Bill and his Harvard idol presume to include anything else? But here's the real defect he sees in section 16. Quote, it says a lawful tender, not the lawful tender. Hmm. Well, a is singular. The is singular. But sure enough, that's, that's what it does say. But again, Section 16, indeed the entire Coinage Act, speaks only of gold and silver coin with a brief reference to copper for striking one-half cent and one-cent tokens. And that's at Section 9. And that gold and silver coin shall be a lawful tender in all payments whatsoever. So why would you presume to include anything else as a lawful tender that is not the object of concern in a coinage act. Why would you be looking for margarine at a dairy plant that makes butter? Or more to the point, why would you look for promises to pay butter coming off the assembly line in a place that makes butter? Excellence in education has created a serious communication problem in America, hasn't it? Anyway, this is Line. This is our halftime break. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy. Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 13. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Welcome back to this side of our halftime break. Uh, Bruce G. McCarthy, datum line. And we're still dealing with the book, No More National Debt, 
published in 2011 by Bill Still. Uh, we'll go to the next sentence on page 101 or thereabouts here in his book. He says, quote, Despite things I have been told for decades, this document, the Coinage Act of 1792, does not say that the United States dollar is defined exclusively, all capital letters, not and exclusively are all caps, as a certain weight of gold or silver, and therefore nothing else could be considered as official U.S. money. <clears throat> well, when he adds that word official U.S. money, he's kind of missing the point there because this Coinage Act pertains to and applies to a specific group of people. It doesn't pertain to you. Okay? If you want to use avocados, if you want to use beef liver, if you want to trade in wampum, uh, you can do whatever you want on the street. This is a coinage act that pertains specifically to public offices. They are the ones who are bound. In other words, not only is Uncle Sam required to keep his accounts current in money, but so are the states, the counties, and municipalities. All public offices. And we'll get to this shortly. Okay. But, uh, you know, uh, you know, why would this act speak of anything else other than what was declared to be money? Okay. Would you list all the substances known to man that are not declared by law to be as money? Okay. He says, it does not say that these coins are the only money in the realm. And he's right, it doesn't. But why would the Coinage Act list all of the substances that man has ever known? that are not declared by law to be as money. Why would the Federal Aviation Administration list all of the objects that might conceivably be propelled into the atmosphere for which an airworthiness certificate would never be issued, like maybe a mobile home carried on the wings of a tornado? Why would Department of Motor Vehicles list a Saturn booster rocket or a sloop-rigged catamaran for which a state-issued certificate of title would not be issued. But back to Bill Still. Quote, Despite things I have been told for decades, this document, the Coinage Act of 1792, does not say that the United States dollar is defined exclusively as a certain weight of gold or silver and therefore nothing else could be considered as official U.S. money. And he's correct. It doesn't say that dollar is exclusively a weight of gold or silver, but neither does it identify any other substance as being weighed in the decimal unit of measure called dollar. Nor does any other statute, to the best of my knowledge. He's incorrect, however, in saying that a dollar is money. Now, at this point, Bill invites his readers to scan an interactive image. Uh, I can't do that because I'm a college dropout. I don't have all this high-tech stuff, you know. Uh, and this is where they're going to be able to read the coinage act for themselves. So I don't know exactly what they're going to read. But he says, may I suggest? No. No, I'm going to suggest that you read section 20. Despite the popular myth accepted by the general public, populists, and most economic reformers, dollars are not the money, as this section reveals to wit. Quote, that the money of account of the United States shall be expressed in dollars or units. We'll stop right there. The money is one thing. The money is expressed 
in dollars or units. Dimes or tenths, cents or hundreds, mills or thousands. The money, gold and silver, which are tangible objects, is one thing. But units of measure, like dollar, dime, cent, and mill, are intangible. Quite a different story. So a unit of the money is not the money for which it is the unit or the unit of measure. For example, bread is expressed in pounds and ounces. That's how we weigh or measure bread. And that's how we express how much bread we have. But pounds and ounces are not synonyms for bread. You cannot see, smell, hear, taste, or touch a pound or an ounce. An ounce is not a gas, liquid, or a solid. Nor does it have any food value, unlike bread. Now, while we're doting somewhat on Section 20, let's identify the parties, here we go, who are specifically made subject to this coinage act. This is how the act ends in its wording. Quote, dot, 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 I'm going to insert the three dots of ellipses here, that all accounts in public offices, are you a public office? That all accounts in public offices and all proceedings in the courts shall be kept and had in conformity to this regulation, period. That's the end of the Coinage Act, which only has 20 sections. It's a very short piece of legislation. It's not like that stuff that they that they uh, kind of foist upon us, you know, 25,000 words and they slip something, 25,000 pages, I'm sorry, uh, and then they slip something in there that is completely irrelevant to maybe uh, NAFTA or something like that. No, this was a very precise and concise piece of legislation. So again, what is the money of account expressed in dollars and cents that all of our public offices and courts must keep their accounts current in? The answer is found at Section 11 of the same Coinage Act, which, according to Bill Still, says, quote, that the ratio of gold to silver in United States coinage shall remain 15 to 1, etc., etc., end quote. Well, those are his words. But this rendering, along with, along with other omissions and faulty explanations given in his book, does have me wondering if Bill is either confused or dishonest. Section 11 says a little more than he lets on, stating in pertinent part, quote, that the proportional value of gold to silver in all coins which shall by law be current as money within the United States shall be as 15 to 1, dot, 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 three dots of ellipses. I'll stop there. <clears throat> Now, in keeping with Bill's unique system of logic, it could be said that Section 11 doesn't say anything about paper money either. And so we could come to the conclusion that he does on page 95, quote, <clears throat> it is clear that the term to coin money gives Congress the power to make anything become money, end quote. Clear? His understanding of the Constitution, federal statutes, and basic economics is anything but clear. The Coinage Act doesn't say anything about stainless steel cookware or diesel-powered locomotives either. But then why should it? At this point, still on page 95 now, I've backed up a little bit, he takes a shot at G. Edward Griffin. You know the name. He's the one who wrote the book, Creature from Jekyll Island. It's well known among Federal Reserve critics. Here's what Bill Still says. Quote, 
Interestingly, there's that word again, Griffin avoids examining the constitutional meaning of these terms so central to his pro-gold money thesis. Wow. I've never seen such contempt for accurate definitions as I find among populists. And he's taking a shot at Ed Griffin. Now, according to Bill, the Coinage Act, which makes gold and silver coin a lawful tender in all payments whatsoever, fails to preclude anything not mentioned in the Coinage Act from also being money. And since cod liver oil, asphalt, and flypaper are not mentioned in the Coinage Act, are we to presume that for public purposes they too are lawful money? Or a lawful tender in all payments whatsoever? If so, why bother limit the spectrum of choice by specifically naming gold and silver? If an ICC, you know, the Interstate Commerce Commission, if the ICC regulation says that all commercial vehicles over four tons gross vehicle weight shall be subject to inspection at every port of entry, dot, 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 why limit ICC to such a narrow field of oversight? Nothing was specifically said about private automobiles, RVs, motorcycles, four-wheelers, bicycles, pogo sticks, and magic carpets. So why not expand bureaucratic tyranny to include those as well? And why limit the subject matter to vehicles only, for heaven's sake? An enlightened Congress surely must have intended to let ICC inspect cornfields and emails, lingerie and oil wells, public restrooms and airline luggage, septic tanks and leach fields. Now, this is the kind of reasoning that's used by people like Steve Zarlenger, I suppose, of the American Monetary Institute, who tell their audience that we can trust Congress to create money out of nothing as though there was a power to do that. But not to worry. Unlike the Federal Reserve, Congress would never abuse the power to steal and steal legally. I think it's bad enough that authors and video producers crank out this kind of nonsense. But they're free to do it, of course. And that they're invited to address audiences hither and yon. Well, those audiences are certainly free to invite them. What's really frightening to me, though, is that there are so many people who believe this stuff. My hat's off to the Department of Education and the National Education Association. You have done a marvelous job. Now, in the few minutes we have remaining, let's return to the year 1862 and the events leading up to the legal tender debates in Congress that would give birth to United States notes, those things affectionately referred to as Lincoln Greenbacks, to which the populists at American Free Press give thankful praise. These notes would open the gates wide to a system of intangible credit, followed by the confiscation of our gold and silver coinage in a 50-year-long credit-for-money swamp orchestrated by the Federal Reserve. This, in turn, would suffocate the American Republic in the quicksand of federal bank credit. Having previously painted a rough outline of my own, as to our State of the Union in 1862, I'll now defer to Mr. Edwin Vieira. In his two-volume, 1,722-page treatise, Pieces of Eight, published in 2002, Ed Vieira lays out a thorough defense on behalf of the monetary powers and disabilities of the United States Constitution. Now, by the word disabilities, he means the impediments or restrictions placed upon our federal government by the Constitution, 
so as to prevent a runaway bureaucracy and despotic tyranny. On pages 561, 2, and 3, he sketches our national state of affairs at the outset of those legal tender debates in 1862. Briefly, this will be my summation, but briefly it kind of goes like this. The Civil War opened with the Union government's finances in disarray. Federal creditworthiness and resources were then further weakened by the Southern Rebellion and Secession. Uh, well, if you were an investor, would you want to invest in a company or a country that's going down the tubes? Probably not. So you see, that's why the uh, creditworthiness of the Union would be destroyed by this rebellion. This was further confounded by inept, or possibly intentional, blunders made by various officials in Lincoln's administration. The uh, intentional aspect is placed on the table by Speaker of the House James G. Blaine in his two volumes, two years, 20 years of Congress, I should say, published in 1884, and we'll get to that in a subsequent broadcast. In response to the rapidly rising economic demands of war, government expenditures multiplied, said Mr. Vieira, eightfold between 1860 and 1862, <clears throat> from a little over $63 million dollars Hey, that's pretty cheap government, isn't it? Can you imagine Washington, D.C., operating on $63 million this year? Well, I realize, you know, we've got more people and we've got more programs and we've got more expensive uh, equipment and so forth. But, you know, if you were operating on hard money, gold and silver, uh, I believe that you could probably be down in the hundreds of millions of dollars and operate the federal government. That is, if you operated within the confines of the constitutional limitations or disabilities. Now, if you want a welfare state, the likes of which the general public seems to be clamoring for, well, you won't be able to do that. But anyway, it went from $63 million, I think it was 63.1, to nearly $479 million. Now, that's an eight-fold increase in just two to three years. He went on to point out that efforts to raise sufficient revenues by constitutional means through increased taxation were not undertaken in a timely fashion, thus opening the door to the quote-unquote necessity of borrowing money, as is provided by the Constitution at Article 1, Section 8, and Paragraph 2, but with the added burden of interest on top of the principal sum to be borne by the American people. To further aggravate matters, he points out that the state chartered banks had already announced their suspension of specie payment in late 1861, which is to say they would not redeem any of their banknotes presented to them for the gold and silver allegedly on deposit. This dishonoring of their notes was tantamount to an admission of bankruptcy, which didn't do an awful lot to inspire confidence, you know, in the banker's uh, confidence game among their depositors or the public in general. Now, I should probably make a note here <clears throat> Uh, there were several different kinds of federal debt instruments to which the nickname of Lincoln Greenbacks were given, not all of which were forced upon the public by the sanction of legal tender statute. The first issue, authorized by Acts of July 17 and August 5, 1861, were demand notes made payable at the United States Treasury in New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Cincinnati, or St. Louis. So enjoy the trip, because that's how far you might have to go to make those demand notes payable 
and $60 million of those notes was authorized by that act. They were not legal tender, but were intended to circulate as a substitute for lawful money in denominations of 5 10 and $20. Now, that was quite a bit of, quite a quantity of money back in those days. These were the take em or leave em notes. In other words, you didn't have to take them because they weren't legal tender. You could refuse them. <clears throat> Next came the legal tender take em or else variety in denominations of $1 all the way up to $10,000. They also included $500, $1,000, and $5,000 denomination as well. While they all carried a promise to pay, the notes did not say when or in what. And these were issued by Honest Abe. Last on the agenda came interest-bearing notes in denominations of ten to $5,000. Authorized by Acts of March 3rd, 1863 and June 30, 1864, they were made legal tender to compel their acceptance as substitutes for lawful money. These are the notes to which Mr. Vieira refers. And we will return to my summation of his remarks after this break. Greetings and welcome back to the final segment of this installment of Datum Line. Uh, this Datum Line is Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 13. Uh, we were talking about the methods the government was using to, uh, to raise funds, money, if you will. And to raise money quickly, the Treasury, back in 1862, offered for sale or maybe 1863, interest-bearing treasury notes to the tune of $10 million on the first go-around. As the spirit of panic quickly took hold of Washington officials, they were issued in progressively lower denominations until their use as a money substitute became assured. The fact that they promised to pay interest was a further inducement for people to take them and possibly hold on to them in hopes of financial reward. Uncle Sam, meanwhile, got the goods and services needed for the war by using this new kind of credit for asset swap, which was a form of taxation. Mr. Vieira reminds his readers that while all of this was going on, Congress possessed but ignored a constitutional alternative for providing necessary revenue by increased or new taxes or by borrowing money in a free market through sale of bonds rather than forcing legal tender interest-bearing notes or non-interest-bearing notes on the public. The borrowing method provided for at Article 1, Section 8, and Paragraph 2 was what Thomas Jefferson wanted to have removed from the Constitution. You might remember his statement concerning that effect. Okay, He apparently was a victim of personal debt. I think he died in debt. And the temptation of debt, which may have given impetus to his developing views on the subject of national debt. In our next broadcast, we will look at the subject of borrowing and how maybe you could actually lend to government and maybe not even violate the principles of Scripture in so doing when you have a necessity such as war. We will then proceed from that 
into the debates themselves. We'll look at the wording of those people who uh, voted not only against legal tender, but in this series we're going to be looking at those people who voted for them to show that it was pretty well understood uh, by uh, people in Congress that they were violating their constitutional oath when they issued United States notes. But again, I need to emphasize for listeners, particularly those who are advocates of United States notes, and then leaning upon the Juliet versus Greenman decision and other legal tender cases to justify their idea of a note, which uh, in the populist viewpoint doesn't contain a promise. It doesn't promise to pay money. It's just like the Federal Reserve notes of today. Those notes didn't come out until 1963, only days after the assassination of President Kennedy. And what were we doing? We were all busy watching the TV set. It's almost as though the Kennedy assassination was a made-to-order distraction so that the Federal Reserve could take that promise off the new notes and begin swapping the no-promise notes for the promissory notes that were still in circulation. And the public didn't notice. But, of course, it, it made a little difference that the uh, line that said, we'll pay to the bear on demand, was such a small line so that it could be removed from a note without arousing too much suspicion. Well, this is our music. This is the end of this installment. I hope this has been of interest to you. Have yourself a good day. So long. some funky little things going on? Let me share this story with you. It's not so much a story. It's something I wrote years ago. Read your history, people. Stock markets collapse on Friday. Bank seizures, closures, holidays take place after business hours on Friday. Do currencies or governments also collapse on Friday? <laughs> Tomorrow's Friday. Will the end come on this Friday, or will the inevitable collapse hold off for a while? The next round of the worst financial crisis in a hundred years is coming, people, and the government is out to make you and I pay for it. And will your savings survive a global banking wipeout? What happens when the U.S. sees hyperinflation? What if taxes soar not only for the rich? Can you survive if the stock market tanks? Look, between a stock market wipeout, waves of bank failures, soaring government spending that will lead to hyperinflation and the destruction of the dollar's value, isn't it time that you prepare for the uncertainty which lies ahead? Protect your money now or forever kiss it goodbye. My friends, I offer you over six decades experience of hard asset ownership and knowledge. And I'm prepared to handle the smallest detail in the balanced protection of your portfolio. For as the future of uncertainty continues to blanket this nation of ours, 
I believe that I can offer you the privacy, safety, security, and possibly some profitability which you deserve. And so I invite you to visit SierraMondrePreciousMetals.com for further information regarding protecting your wealth. Or call me, Jeffrey Bennett, at 602-799-8214. Or by email at KettleMoraineLTD at Cox.net for private consultation. Once again, our phone number is 602-799-8214. It's almost Friday. Are you one of the millions of people who feel like there is a dark cloud hanging over their heads whenever they're using pharmaceutical drugs? For some, the short-term relief can turn into an opioid addiction nightmare. Have you ever wondered why CBD oil is a billion-dollar industry? It's because it works better than opioids and is actually healthy for you. However, CBD oil is stripped of all other helpful compounds found in the hemp plant. According to neuroscientists, the whole hemp plant, otherwise known as hemp paste, is even more effective than the chemically processed CBD oil. Are you ready to take back your health? You can try hemp paste by going to rbnhemppaste.com. That's rbnhemppaste.com. I'm so excited to have you as part of the Wild Pastures family, and we look forward to bringing you the pastures meats that you and your family will love. Now, we started Wild Pastures because so many of my clients would tell me they just couldn't find high-quality pasture-raised meats. And even when they did, it was so expensive that they couldn't afford to eat it regularly. Now, I'm not talking about the bottom-of-the-barrel healthy meats that have claims like natural or free-range or even cage-free, terms that were actually created by the industrial food industry to make us feel all warm and fuzzy about buying their low-quality products. I'm talking about truly nourishing pasture-raised meats, the kind that you'll never really find in a grocery store. Our farmers are doing things beyond organic. Our beef is 100% grass-fed and grass-finished and raised on pastures free from chemicals and other pesticides. Our chickens are 100% pasture-raised, where they get their natural diet of grass and forage and insects. We will never settle for free range, which is actually one of the most deceptive terms in the chicken industry. In fact, less than 0.1% of the chicken consumed in the United States is truly pasture-raised in the way that ours is. And our pork is 100% pasture-raised as well. So if you care about where your food comes from, then you have definitely made it to the right place. As a Wild Pastures member, you'll be supporting the most highly principled farmers in America and getting the most nutrient-dense, nourishing, and sustainable meats in the world. I'm confident you'll love being part of our mission at Wild Pastures, and you will really love the delicious, nourishing meats that we're going to deliver straight to your door. Visit republicbroadcasting.org and click the Wild Pastures banner ad. Secure a shipment today. Beef, poultry, and pork. Raised the way nature intended. Tahibo Tea Club's original pure pouty arco super tea comes from the only tree in the world that fungus does not grow on. As a result, it naturally has antifungal, anti-infection, antiviral, antibacterial, anti-inflammation, and anti-parasite properties. So the tea is great for healthy people because it helps build the immune system, and it can truly be miraculous for someone fighting a potentially life-threatening disease due to an infection, diabetes, or cancer. 
The tea is also organic and naturally caffeine-free. A one-pound package of tea is $49.95, which includes shipping. To order, please visit drinksupertea.com. The first word is drink, spelled D-R-I-N-K, then the word super, then the word tea. The complete website is drinksupertea.com. Or call us at 818-965-9113, Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. California time. That's 818-965-9113, drinksupertea.com. My name is John. I'm the founder of Blackout Coffee, and I started uh, Blackout because I really love coffee. I've always loved coffee, and after traveling so much to Europe, South America, and trying so many different coffees that were so good, and uh, every time I came back, uh, to the U.S., I was so disappointed with the coffee, so I figured that I had to do something about it. The biggest difference is really is on the beans and the roasting process, how we roast it, and how fresh it is. The fresher the roast, the better the quality. Here I have like all, all of the coffee. It's roasted within one to two days prior to being shipped. So it literally gets to consumer's house within three to five days after being roasted. If you like coffee, you have to try ours. It's fresh roasted. It's one of the best beans that we can get. And you will definitely see the difference. Visit blackoutcoffee.com and use the coupon code REPUB10. That's REPUB10. Corporate media dominates the American opinion. Finding independent voices that counter this avalanche is becoming increasingly difficult. With the endless corruption running rampant throughout our government, independent voices are needed more than ever to battle the offensive against our freedoms and liberties. As a listener of RBN, no one understands this concept better than you. Now it's up to you to do your part. The time has come for you to take action and begin broadcasting the truth to hundreds or thousands of people every month. Sound impossible? Quite the contrary. With pointed slogans from LibertyStickers.com, you can reach countless sleeping Americans unaware that they live in a real-life wonderland. LibertyStickers.com has a huge inventory of political bumper stickers and messages that reflect the truth about our government, our politicians, and the future of America. With so many in stock, there's one perfect for you. Visit us today at LibertyStickers.com. Again, that's LibertyStickers.com. Do your part. Your voice is important. Let it be heard. Hey there, are you going to wait till the cows come home to get your new Ease-Off Drop and Lift? What in the world is an Ease-Off Drop and Lift? Our Ease-Off is a new tool to increase production for your meat processing company that will get that whole hog or half a beef on or off your rail with our remote control. That sounds great, but can I afford it? Sure, and the Ease-Off installs fast. The effortless operation will reduce fatigue, speed up your line, and increase profits. Okay, I'm convinced. Where can I get my Ease-Off? Go to EaseOff.com. That's E-A-Z-E-O-F-F dot com. And hurry because we're offering free shipping for a limited time. EaseOff.com. We make pigs fly. Cows, too. EaseOff, LLC, 417-932-6419. 
homeowners. Are you in foreclosure, expecting to be served with a foreclosure lawsuit, or suspect your lender has coerced you into an illegal mortgage transaction? A huge number of mortgages made in the last 10 years have legal issues and are possibly defective. State laws and the U.S. Supreme Court have upheld that defective mortgage documents are grounds for foreclosure defense and for counterclaims in favor of the homeowner. If your mortgage has been sold or assigned since closing the loan, it may be defective and you may be paying the wrong party and the lender may not have standing or the right to foreclose or collect payments under the law. If you would like to know if your mortgage is legal or not or know if you are paying the right party, we can help. Our initial consultations are free of charge. We are not attorneys. We are legal researchers and work closely with experienced lawyers who know how to help you find the evidence to help you keep your home. Call toll-free 1-855-2-KEEP-IT. That's 1-855-2-KEEP-IT today. Do you or someone you know suffer from chest pain, blood pressure, cholesterol, or irregular heartbeat? Are you looking for a more natural solution to overcome these health challenges? You hear the ads all the time. If this stuff's so good, why doesn't my doctor prescribe it? That's easy. Doctors are not trained in natural medicine. Extendivite Heart Tonic does want you to be as healthy as you can be. And it really works. Take Extendivite for six months and your doctor will say, I don't know what you're doing, but don't stop. It's working for you. Get the dependability of Extendivite. Just see how you feel in six months. A two-month supply of either capsules or liquid is only $69.95 plus shipping and handling. Call 1-877-928-8822. That's 1-877-928-8822. Or visit heartdrop.com. Extend your life with Extendovite. Hello, hello, hello from beautiful Colorado. My name is Samuel Jung Kay, and I am currently the lead Shiloji hunter and master herbalist for Colorado Shiloji Company. In this video series, I will be discussing what we believe is the greatest of all adaptogenic superfoods and the single greatest natural healing remedy gifted to us by Mother Earth. I think you too will become as excited by this incredible substance called Shiloji as we were and are after our discovery of this amazing gift right here in beautiful, colorful Colorado. You may already know Shiloji by other names. Shilojit, Momio, Momi, Mami, Mineral Pitch, Asphaltum, and others. Shiloji literally translates to destroyer of weakness and conqueror of mountains. Shiloji has been in use for thousands of years and is considered as the highest valued cure-all of any earthly substance. Look for the gold mountain and medical symbol logo in banners on republicbroadcasting.org to watch the full video and see more information. Use code GORBN when ordering. That's G-O-R-B-N. The secret to aging like fine wine is in the vines. Syrah grape seeds and skins contain high levels of flavonoids and resveratrol. Fermentation breaks these organic compounds down into smaller molecules, penetrating these therapeutic ingredients deeper into the skin, delivering faster and more effective results. Our handmade fermented skincare products are formulated with all natural ingredients and do not contain any phthalates or parabens. Similar products can cost as much as $180. At Natural Earth Medicine, we source our ingredients from local Arizona vineyards and cold process our oils to ensure that our customers receive the highest quality product in its purest form. Learn more at our website and try our fermented skincare products today. Visit naturalearthmedicine.com. That's naturalearthmedicine.com. 